I had a question that was uh, sent to me for the radio show a couple weeks ago, and I answer, we answered, here and I answered the question on the radio last week of the radio show. You can listen to the recording at wearejustchristians.com, but I want to talk about some aspects of this subject that was that was brought up, not that specific question. Might do that question maybe more of that next week, but I want to talk about what the Bible says about the subject of baptism because it's a very important subject, and, and I may not talk about it enough in some ways because sometimes it's something... I, I don't want people to think or get the idea that well, that's all that they talk about is just getting people wet. I, I don't believe that's true, and um, but I, on the other hand, I don't think that the world at large, the religious world at large, has a proper understanding of baptism. I think it's misunderstood greatly. And so, if you said, "Well, I was baptized in the Baptist church, or I was baptized when I was a kid in the Catholic church," my impression is not because I, and it's not because I have to baptize people myself because that doesn't matter. But my the problem I have with that is if you if you learned about baptism in most all denominations, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, whatever it is, and you, you, and you did what they taught you about baptism, you did what they taught you, and you did it for the reasons that they teach you, you would not be following the New Testament pattern of baptism. You just simply wouldn't be doing that. You would think that you did. You would have a good heart. You would mean to. And your sincerity is not at all a question, but you wouldn't be doing it. So I, I think it's important to take a look at it. And I'm going to do so in a very simple way. The Bible says that there is one baptism. Now, interestingly enough, when you read the New Testament, you will see about seven different times or, or things the word baptism is used to re- refer to. So there are seven baptisms mentioned in the New Testament but Paul says there's only one baptism. Which one is it? Is it the Holy Spirit falling on people? Is that the baptism, the Holy Spirit baptism? Is it the baptism of fire? Is it the baptism of damnation or condemnation? What What is the this baptism? What kind is it? Well, I think the New Testament makes that clear with, with a, a little perusing and study. The problem is that modern denominationalism doesn't believe in the importance of baptism or the significance of baptism in the way that the New Testament teaches for various reasons. What's happened is, early on, there is absolutely no doubt. You can read any religious historian that you want to read, whether they're Catholic, whether they're Episcopalian, whether they're Lutheran, you can read, or even secular. You can read any religious historian, and they are all unanimous that the early Christians for several centuries all believed that baptism was necessary for salvation and that it was done by immersion in water. They all believed that, and they will tell you that's what history says. But then things began to change. Men began to substitute their eyes. And you get to the 1500s, you have a major change in that uh, those who followed Luther and then Calvin believed that, your, that baptism had nothing to do with salvation, that you're saved by faith alone. Emphasize the word alone, and that baptism simply was a sign of already having been saved. So, for example, it isn't uncommon if you go if you go to a, a Baptist church as a young person, and they'll have some people. They'll call you down to the front to the altar call, and the preacher there will then pray over you. Can say the sinner's prayer. The preacher will pray over you, and he'll tell you uh, you're all, you're saved. And now, when we get enough people together, then we'll have a baptismal service later on. Maybe. Easter time or something. Because baptism is not essential. 
essential to salvation. And there are probably some of you who have been through that very experience. So I'm not, I'm not saying you're a bad person, nor am I just trying to cast aspersion or make something up. There's a reason why people have practiced that, because they do not believe that. What's the New Testament say about this baptism? Now, it's our belief here that even if we don't understand it, that the New Testament is what we should be following. And so it's our duty to bend our desires to the will of the New Testament because that's what Christ left us. And I imagine most all of you share that. I, I very seldom, if ever, have met people that want to come to a church service like this who say, I don't care what the New Testament says, I'm going to do what I want. Very few people believe that. They don't always live by that, but that's what they believe. So let's just take a look. Here, here's the passage I'm referring to in Ephesians 4. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible handy, I'm going to put the scriptures I'm going to use up here. I know we're going to probably go through some of these quickly because of time. Uh, if you want to, write them down or after service, I'll give you a copy of all these. No problem, I'll give you a copy of everything we talked about this morning. Or there'll be a recording on our on our website by the end of the week. You can listen to it and get them yourself. But I just want to encourage you to just read this with me. This is from the New King James Version. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. You'll hear people today, for example, say, oh, there are many churches. Well, the church in the New Testament is called the body. The, the body of Christ is called the church. You can look up that up for yourself. But how many bodies are there according to the New Testament? There's not many bodies. That's what human beings say. But how many bodies? Well, there are as many bodies or churches as there are fathers or gods. How many gods are there? Well, this says there's one God and Father. How many church bodies are there? There's one. Oh, there's different kinds of baptism that are essential for every Christian. How many are there This is that are essential for every Christian? You see, this passage talks about unity. And he's saying these are things that have to be common to all Christians. When he said, he's talking about here unity before and after this verse, verse 3 and then on down verse 7. And he's saying these are things that all Christians have in common that all of us can be united on. And how many baptisms unite all of us? One. And it's not the Holy Spirit baptism. That's for some Christians, but not all. But this one baptism is for all. And he lists all these different things that there are. One hope and one Lord, one faith. There's only one. Oh, well, you, you just need to practice whatever faith you want to. Because there are many faiths. You ever heard people say that? Well, that's not a New Testament statement. How many faiths are there in the New Testament? One. There is one set of, and what that means, there's one set of things to be believed. The New Testament teaches one set of beliefs or things you have faith in that's to be believed by all Christians. And so that's what we have to understand. So let's take a look at this one baptism. It's kind of a, a cheesy little chart I did here, but uh, let's take a look at this one baptism and see some aspects of this baptism that are important that you ought to consider. And you can read the scriptures for yourself. There is one authority that controls baptism. That's Jesus Christ himself. He is the authority that establishes and regulates and controls baptism. It's not a church. It's not me. It's not the church of Christ or the Catholic church. It's none of those. It's Jesus Christ himself. Because you see right here at the end of his earthly ministry, 
in the book of Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It says, and Jesus, here he's getting ready to ascend back to heaven. And he says, it says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I have authority over everything, whether it's civil government, the law, the land. I have authority over every human being and everything on earth, including religion, as it were. All authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I want you to know something else about unity. You don't always see the word one or unity in these verses, but notice what he says. You apostles, you go, therefore, and you make disciples of all the nations. There is only one baptism that is suitable for all people for all times. Every nation is subject to the authority of Christ and the authority of him when he says you need to be baptized. That's how inclusive this is. It's a unifying fact. So this morning, around the world, and as the day goes on, part of the day's already gone. If you're living in the, over in Europe and Asia, it's already part of the day's been, well, I guess you're in Europe. Our day's already gone, and around the world it'll go. The sun will, earth will spin. Well, I presume the earth is spinning. Are we any flat earthers in here? I don't know. But in any event, uh, around the world today, people I've never met who are my brothers and sisters in Christ are preaching and teaching the same thing that they read from the New Testament all around the world because he said, you make disciples of all nations. So all those people are my brothers and sisters and I theirs. And so baptism is essential to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Then whatever nation you're a part of, you need to be baptized into Christ. He, he also says in Mark 16, 16, same circumstance, same uh, context of just ready to ascend. Here's how Mark records these words. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature or create every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, there's more to that passage. We'll cut it off for the sake of time this morning. But he says the same thing. You go preach this doctrine of people being baptized in my name by my authority. So it isn't the authority of a preacher that that you're responding to when you say, I'd like to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the authority of Christ that you're responding to. And you ought to respond to that authority. Now, something else about this one baptism is there's one subject for baptism. This is an important part of this. There's one subject, a person, a kind of person who is subject to being baptized. And it isn't just everyone that's a human being. It is a penitent believer. Now the word penitent means one who is repenting or a repentant believer. One who has decided my life is not right. I want to be right with God. I want to renounce the way I've been living and I want to believe in Jesus Christ and I want to follow him. That person can be baptized. And that's the only kind of person that can be baptized, according to the New Testament. A penitent or a, or a repentant believer. Not everybody who has been baptized in the history of the world is a believer. A lot of them are children. It's impossible for them to be believers because they're infants. They had the priest take a drop of, not even a whole, not even a sprinkling of water. They had a priest take a drop of water, put it on their forehead when they were a baby, and they say that that's baptism. But that's not what the scriptures say about this. Notice in Romans 10, Paul's talking about salvation in general here. 
He's already talked about baptism in chapter 6. And he says here that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now I want you to think about how an infant or a small child could ever fulfill those verses of having faith in Jesus Christ so that they are able to make a confession with their mouth based on the belief of their heart that Jesus Christ is their savior. How can it be done? Can't be done because faith comes by hearing. Faith doesn't come because your parents take you somewhere and say, I want my faith to go on to the child. That's what, that's what infant baptism is about. If you go look at the theology of it, is the idea that, well, uh, okay. Back in New Testament times, because the New Testament teaches it, that the only way that you're a sinner is if you sin. The New Testament doesn't teach that you're born a sinner. That's a doctrine that came later in church history. But by the time, in several hundred years after Christ, after Augustine and some other people came along, people began to believe in original sin and then later in total depravity. That you're born with original sin or you're born with total in total depravity. And therefore, when they began, came to believe that, that woman would have a baby, father and mother look at the little baby and they say, wow, this baby is depraved. This baby has original sin that came onto it just because we're his parents or just because it was born. We need to save our baby. Our baby is going to die if it die. And people, babies died all the time back then. This baby might die with sin. We need to get it baptized. And so they began to teach a doctrine that babies could be baptized because they believed in original sin or in total depravity. So then the doctrine came, well, well, how can it, how come it, can it be that we can baptize a baby because they don't have faith? And so it began to be taught, convenient doctrine began to be taught that the parent's faith could be placed upon the child. That's the doctrine of in loco parentis, in, in place of the parent, as it were, that can substitute faith for the, of the child. And so the parent's faith, when you take a child to be baptized, the parents pledge their faith in Christ, and the parents pledge to raise that child to be a believer. And then they allow the baby to be baptized with the faith of the parents on it. So that's what happens in these churches. And then later on what happens is another whole doctrine was then had to be created. When the child grows up and at age 12, 13, 14, back, back when most people begin to think that children become more like adults, become responsible at that age, then you go to confirmation, confirmation classes. Remember my best friend in high school was a Lutheran. He, wasn't a serious move, but he was serious enough that his parents made him go to confirmation because he couldn't go do things with me sometimes because he was going to confirmation class. I'm like, what's this, Mike? And he says, well, uh, I was baptized when I was a baby, and now i got to go have my faith confirmed uh, by going to confirmation classes. The, so now they're confirming that the faith that once was the parents when he was baptized as an infant is now the child's faith by going to confirmation classes. So that's why some of you went to confirmation classes. You might not have known that, but that's why. Now, the problem with that, it doesn't make these people bad. He wasn't a bad person for doing that. He was mistaken, or so was his parents, about what the New Testament teaches about baptism. Now, here's the problem you're going to have. Now that I tell you this, and now that you read it for yourself, you're going to have a problem. because At once you could claim, well, I didn't know. I was ignorant about what really was going on here. But you're not going to be ignorant soon. You're going to know what the New Testament says ought to be done, and it can be a problem for you. I just want you to be aware of that. Because this verse says 
that faith comes by hearing God's word and you have to do now that you're an adult what the New Testament says, which is believe, confess with your mouth and be baptized. The other thing I want to point out real quickly, our time is slipping away. You'll hear people say all the time today that we are saved by faith alone and that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Nothing that you can do because you're saved by faith alone. They also say you're saved by grace alone, which makes no sense. Which one is it? Great, you know, grace or faith? They both can't be alone if they're not alone, but we, we're not going to get into that. But here's the problem. This verse says very directly that there is something you must do to be saved with your mouth. Oh, it's not about, you. it says, as long as, if you just believe in your heart, if you just believe in your heart for that moment you believe God will automatically save you. The problem is this verse is a stumbling block to that belief because this verse says not only must you believe in your heart, but you have to confess with your mouth. That's something that you do. Well, I didn't think you could do anything that would save you. Well, you you have to if you follow the New Testament. So this is a problem. Uh, they want to act like salvation is unconditional. God saves you. You don't have to do anything. And yet this passage has that little word in there, if, in verse 9, if is a conditional statement. Okay, and it means there are conditions to this salvation. If you confess with your mouth and if you believe with your heart, then you can be saved. So I want you to think about that. I don't think you've been told the whole truth about it because this verse is against that idea uh, that you need to do something. And, and w- when Robert was baptized last week, you, most of you saw that. I made him stand right there, and I made him. I asked him very plainly in front of all of you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? I've asked, I don't know how many of you that question. It was asked of me when I was a young man, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And I said yes with my mouth. Or sometimes I repeat the whole, people repeat the whole thing. That is part of being saved. Not all of it, but part of it. Now then, uh, you see this patch in Acts chapter 2. And after these people ask Peter what should they do to be saved because they've been guilty of crucifying the Lord, he, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. We'll read that in a moment in verse 38. And then he says, it says in verse 40, with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And there were that day about 3,000 souls. Those were penitent believers. How do I know that? Because he told them in verse 38, repent, that's penitence, and, and be baptized. That would take the faith in Christ. They were confessing he's now Lord in Christ. That's exactly what we have here. Penitent believers. Now, moving on real quickly, there is one purpose for baptism. This is a big one. This is what's missed by so many sincere and devout people who are trying to do what they think they should do. I've been told, though, something that's mistaken about this, unfortunately. And I'm not setting myself up somehow smarter than all these people. I just think it takes a simple reading of the New Testament to see this. And if it wasn't for historical historical things that happened centuries ago, most people most people were able to see this very clearly when they set aside all that stuff they've been taught in tradition and just read the Bible for themselves. And that is what the purpose of baptism is. Sometimes when I begin to study with someone, I know it might be a longer study, I will have them tell me or write it down 
When were you saved? Are you saved? When were you saved? And what did you do to be saved? Come be saved. And they'll write it down. And they'll say, well, I was saved when I uh, said the sinner's prayer. Something like that. And uh, they write it down. Now then later, after we study for a while, and after they read these verses for themselves, I'll ask them, were you ever baptized? Oh, yes, I was baptized for the remission of my sins. Really? I thought you were saved by saying the sinner's prayer. Weren't your sins remitted when you said the sinner's prayer or when you came to be a believer? And then later you were baptized so that you could show your belief? Or did that... But what's happened there, not being dishonest with me, what's happened is they've read what the Bible says about it and they believe that because they're good people. They they can see it. And so they transpose what they now understand from reading the scriptures back in what they did years ago. May or may not match up, but they transpose it back. Don't do that. Be careful about that. Because the scriptures are clear about the purpose of baptism. Here's the purpose of baptism. And it's not to, to show that you've already been saved or already had your sins remitted. It says in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, just a previous what we just read. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The word for there means unto the remission of sins. So the repentance and the baptism point an arrow and really in Greek that word is a it's kind of an arrow word points to the remission of sins. So there's the purpose explained. Remission of remission of a debt of a sin is like remission of a debt. It means it's no longer owed. It's a forgiveness. It's a doing away with sins. That's what remission means. We don't use that word too much. Well, cancer goes into remission, disappears. And so you have then in Mark sixteen sixteen the same verse we just read a moment ago. Jesus says, "He who believes and is baptized will be saved." How can they be saved? Well, they're saved because their sins are remitted. Now here's here's the way. Now, this is, this really is almost so simple, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. Look at this verse, it's in part that's emphasized here in green, or whatever color that is. Verse 16. Here's how, here's how it reads. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Here's how the common, uh, denominational preacher or you know, evangelical read. He will say, he that believeth shall be saved and then is baptized. They, they use the same three words, but they say, he that believeth shall be saved and then at Easter will be baptized. That's how they do it. Is that the same? I'm asking you a simple question. Is that the same thing as saying, he that believeth and is baptized, there's that word and, shall be saved. Same as saying, he that believeth shall be saved and is baptized. Well, it's not the same at all. Because it's mixing up the purpose of baptism and what it is. I've had Baptist preachers tell me directly when asked about this, in a very, I don't tell the whole story again, it's an interesting story, but I've probably told it more than once. Uh, call him up, and he was a nice guy. I, I, I said, uh, Sister so-and-so, or this lady we both knew, I said, she claims that when she was baptized in the Baptist church that she was baptized for the remission of her sins. He says, oh, no, no, no. He, he says... Uh, she was dying of cancer, and I was talking, and she, she had called him up and talked. He had told her that, yeah, when you were baptized, Dolores, 
you were baptized for remission of sins. So I just called him up and asked him, is that what happened? And I wasn't trying to be mean to him. I asked, he said, oh, no, no, we don't believe in water salvation. I just told her that so she wouldn't be upset because she's dying. That's what he told me on the phone. I said, okay, thank you. Hung up. Went back and told her. She said, how soon can we get to the water? Because she wanted to do what the New Testament said. She had already been, she'd been baptized. She said, I want to make sure when I die that I've done exactly what this book says. Because I love the Lord. And I admire her for that. She passed away a few days later. But the point is, he would, he, he, he knew he was very adamant about it. We do not believe what he, in what he called water salvation. Almost a slander against God. In Galatians 3, verse 26 and 27, it says, For all of you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is a foundational principle. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So being baptized isn't just a ceremony that you do. It isn't just something you do because you're a Christian. Notice what it says here. If you've been baptized, into, uh, baptized you've been baptized into Christ... At the point of baptism, you come, become part of Christ's body, you're into Christ, and you have put on Christ as a shield and clothing. It's not just an, a rite or a ritual or a ceremony that you do later. It's integral to the process of becoming a Christian, being in Christ. And that's why, uh, we'll come back to this later, but Ananias told Saul, why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. The purpose of baptism is the remission of sins, putting them away, wash them away, calling on the name of the Lord. All right, now then you have here, sorry about the big black line running through everything. I don't know how that happened. Whoever made this is, you know, ridiculous. But anyway, the design of baptism, what it looks like is immersion. That's the whole, that's another big problem in religion. There's almost no point of this, little chart that I'm going to show you that hasn't been altered or changed by some denomination somewhere. Almost all. Why would that be? Well, if it's a, if baptism is as central as I believe it is to the whole point of salvation and Jesus Christ, the devil would spend spare no effort to change all of it if he could. It's too essential. He wants it all to be altered in people's minds to prevent them from doing what he's, what he's saying for them to do. But you can read it for yourself. You don't need to be a theologian to read these verses. So immersion or dipping or plunging is the idea. And you have this reading here in Romans chapter 6. Part of a larger reading, but we will spare the time for this. It says, do you not know, Paul says, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, there we go again, into Christ, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Baptism is what connects you to the death of Christ And in the death of Christ, there is the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ is what forgives sins. That's that's why there's remission in baptism. It isn't that the water is magic, that the act, the design of baptism, of being buried with Christ, connects you to his death, and that's where the blood is that forgives your sins. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, that's plunging down and being buried in the ground, we shall also be uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. We're going to come forth from that grave and be new. So here's the connection. It's not a meaningless ceremony once again. 
Not just a symbol. It is a symbol, but not just a symbol. It connects you to the death of Christ and to the action here of being buried with him, not in the earth, but in the water that you can come out of and live a life, live a new life. And he says that we were buried. What does it mean by buried? You need to tell me you bury things by sprinkling some dirt on top of them? No. You plunge them under the water. And you need to think about what that means in case of maybe your baptism or baptism people that you know. And then we have this case, an actual case in Acts 8.35. Here is Philip, the evangelist, he's preaching to this eunuch who doesn't understand all that he's reading. So he begins, he begins where he was reading in Isaiah. Philip does. He, he joins this chariot. They're driving along in a chariot. And this treasure from Ethiopia is reading. And he doesn't understand all that he's reading. And so Philip begins to explain it. And it says he opened his mouth beginning at this scripture and he preached Jesus to him. Preaching, now this, notice in this verse what preaching Jesus means. It doesn't mean what you're seeing on the TV, he, he gets us. It doesn't mean what those people say it means to understand Jesus or know about Jesus. What does it mean to understand Jesus or preach Jesus? Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch says, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Where did get, where in the world did the eunuch get the idea that water and baptism were important to him? Where in the world did he get the idea? Here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Where did he get that idea? Well, the evangelist of God told him by preaching Jesus that he needed to be baptized in water to be saved. That's how he got that idea. It's obvious in the passage. And so Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We talked about this verse last week, as I just mentioned. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he dipped him or baptized him. Now when they come up out of the water, spirit, the Spirit of the Lord caught up Philip away, so the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. So here, here's how I saw this portrayed in a movie. Don't you just love when Hollywood does Christian things, I just love it. It's so ridiculous. I could tell you 10 stories about the movies I've seen and just shake my head. Philip and the eunuch wade that into this water, waves deep or higher. The eunuch, the, the Philip reaches over, takes a few little sprinkles of water, sprinkles on top of the eunuch's head. That's how Hollywood portrayed it. Why'd they do that? Because they'd make almost every religion mad if they did plunge them down. Well, that'd be just like that old brother or art thou, that hip movie, a bunch of hillbillies and dipping in the water and so forth. Yeah, that's about right. Okay? They went down to the river for a reason. They could find a cup of water almost anywhere. This man saw the water. He didn't reach down and get a little bit of it and sprinkle on top of the eunuch's head. He immersed him. And so the idea there is very clear. The word baptize here is not a Greek word. Well, it is more of a Greek. It's not an English word. It's a Greek word that's been changed from the Greek letters, baptizo, into an English word. It's called transliteration, not translation. So because of the controversy about baptism, when the King James Bible was translated in the 1600s, maybe a little bit before that, there was a controversy. Because the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and the, and the Lutheran churches in Europe, they sprinkled by that time. And you can read the historians. You can read about them. They'll tell you very clearly. I got all this in some other file. They say, well, it was a, it was a example of the triumph of custom over scriptures in that 
when they began to preach about baptism, it was in the Mediterranean and Italy, and it was warm there. But by the time centrally, by the time the gospel moved up into northern Europe, it was just time for a change of customs. And so they began to sprinkle people because it was cold or because they didn't want to go into the cold. It was convenient. Good. That's how. And then they began to go back into the scripture and find a reason to justify this. It isn't the other way around. They weren't reading the Bible and came up with the idea that somehow we can sprinkle water on top of somebody's head. They weren't reading the Bible when they came up with that idea. It was something that was convenient to them. And so it says here it means to immerse. This is the Greek, this is the, def, the definition from the Greek lexicon about this word baptize. And he baptized him. To immerse, to submerge, to make whelmed. To co- that means to cover up, to baptize, to wash, to dip repeatedly as if in dyeing a cloth, to immerse, to submerge, to cleanse by dipping. It's very clear what this word means. There's another whole word for sprinkling. It's not used in this context in the Bible, you see. So the, the mode of baptism is immersion. So if you come to me and say, well, I was baptized when I was young by sprinkling, I'm going to say, well, let me baptize you. I'm not going to rebaptize you. I will baptize you according to the New Testament. That's what we need to do. That's what you need to do. Now then, the mode of the element of baptism is, is water. It's not fire, and it isn't even in this case the Holy Spirit. This one baptism's element is water, not, for example, the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Well, when you begin to, you, when you look at what the scriptures say, what every Christian is subject to, it is this baptism. We've already read many verses that show this. But notice in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, big context, lots of controversial stuff here, but this, this part is, I think, clear. In verse 20. Who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Go back in ancient, into ancient history and you see that there were eight souls saved through the water. On one side of the water was a sinful world that they lived in before the flood. On the other side of the water was a new world and salvation. They were saved through the water. Or literally by means of water. The water lifted the ark up and washed away the sin. And then it settled back, came back down. Now he says, there is also an antitype there's something that corresponds to this, which now saves us. Baptism saves us. This verse is just plain clear. Baptism now saves us in the same way that the water of the flood saved Noah and his family. And it's not the removal of the filth of the flesh. Oh, it's just water salvation. You're just getting people wet in there. I think my brothers and I played in ponds and stuff and baptized each other when we were kids playing around. Yeah, we plunged each other and tried to hold them down as long as you could. You know, but no. It isn't just washing the filth off your body. It's not that. It's not the water per se. But it's the answer of a good conscience toward God. Baptism isn't about the water. It's about the fact that when a person comes to this point of repentance, they want a clean conscience with God. And baptism gives them that clean conscience. Because it wipes away the filth. It's the salvation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what Jesus says early in his ministry to Nicodemus when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Here's the second birth, the new birth. 
And Jesus answered and said, he said, can I go back in my mother's womb and be born again? He says, no, most assuredly I say to you that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Well, verse 5 says, Jesus answered and said, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Oh, that's the amniotic fluid. That's not what that means at all. And I don't think you, I think it doesn't even fit the, the illustration that Jesus is giving here. He already tells him it's not about the first birth. It's about a new birth. The new birth involves water and the spirit. That's why Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the mischief sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That verse and this verse are parallel to each other. What Jesus says. At least in the, in the broad way. Now then, the last thing about this is that the, the basis of all this is the grace of God. This isn't about works that you do. This isn't about you doing something that you make up that's going to save you that God has no part of. That's an absolute misunderstanding. And I don't even think people like Martin Luther and John Calvin believe that. That's a doctrine that's taught later that baptism is somehow a work of man as such. But that's not what it means. Notice what it says here in John. Um, John, I got the wrong verse down here. This should say, this should say Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, not John 3. Sorry about that. This should say Colossians 2, beginning in verse uh, 11 and 12, 13. Okay, Colossians. In him you were also circumcised. You're thinking of people who already were Christians. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. A lot of them were Gentiles. They hadn't been physically circumcised, but they had been circumcised. If, if you're a Christian, and you've been baptized, you've been circumcised. That's what this verse is saying. Because you've been circumcised. What does it mean to be circumcised? Well, it was a symbolic thing where you cut off a piece of the flesh of the male foreskin. That piece of flesh was cut off to signify that the Hebrew was now given to God. He was devoted to God. All the sinful desires of serving the world were cut off. Now he's serving God alone. That's why it was, that's why it was, the, uh, part, made you part of the, without that you're not part of the covenant that God made with Israel. You and your family, as it were. So he said, we've been circumcised with this new circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is that? Well, he, he uses an appositive here, verse 12. Buried, there it is again, buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When I am baptized based on my belief in Jesus' statement, he that believeth is baptized, when I do that because Jesus said to, and I do that so that I can be saved, I am showing faith not in my ability, not in my works, I'm showing faith in the working of God. Isn't that what this verse says? I'm showing faith in God's work. When I do that, not man's word. So this passage does, baptism does not fit under, and I can go preach another sermon and show you how it doesn't fit at all in Ephesians 2 where he says we're saved by grace. He mentions being baptized there. It's just kind of hidden right there in the passage. And so you see this. And so then you see in Titus chapter 3 that when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared for a man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we're saved by God's mercy through the washing of regeneration. What do you think that refers to? Pretty obvious what it refers to. But it's according to God's mercy, not our works that we do this. Notice also what it says here, and we're going to close with this. Here's the here's Paul and Silas in prison. They've been beaten, thrown in jail, and they're singing psalms. 
and an earthquake happens and by the power of God and the prisoners are freed and, and the jailer starts to kill himself because he knows he's going to be put to death because all the prisoners can escape. Paul cries out and says, don't do yourself any harm. Everybody's still here. We're not going to escape. And he comes and falls down in front of Paul, realizing that Paul is a man of God. He says, what must I do to be saved? And so, summarizing it, they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, meaning all of the other servants in his house, his whole household. And they spoke the Lord, word of the Lord to him and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. He didn't wait till Easter. He knew they weren't saved. And immediately he and all of his family were baptized. The same hour they cleaned him up and they were baptized immediately because it was that important to be saved. That's an important verse for you to consider. I want to say this. Our time is gone, but I'm going to say this. I was going to do a whole lesson on this next week and I still may. I don't want to say a couple other things because I think that some of us like me, you know, been around this all my life, I may misunderstand. Yes, we have water right here. It's even heated thanks to Steve Douthat and clean and all that stuff. And we have clothes for you to change into and all that. And everybody here would be rejoicing if anyone had faith and wanted to serve the Lord. You're going to be surprised. If you watch someone here be baptized, here's people, old people here crying. Why? Because they've been, they know, they know what this means. They, it's been a factor in their life. It's a powerful thing to see faith in someone else. And all that's great. And we'll baptize you based on, I'll ask you if you believe and you can tell the audience and you can be saved today. You can become a Christian. Now, that's the beginning of a long journey. That's not the end. That's the beginning of a long journey. But it doesn't have to be that way. I baptize people in, in lakes, muddy lakes, ruin lots of driver's licenses and wallets. I baptize them in swimming pools, ruin a bunch of wallets there too over the time. I get so excited to forget, you know, ruin, ruin clothes. You can be baptized any hour of the day and night. It doesn't matter. Doesn't have to be by me. Doesn't have to be in a church service. You need to, but you do need when you believe in Jesus Christ as God's son and you want to come and be a Christian. This is what you need to do. So that's how important it is. And there's lots of ways for it to be done logistically, but you need to have in your mind to do it. So don't let a big crowd or a building or fear of this, don't let that stop you. You determine your heart, I want to be a Christian. I want to do what these verses say. And I'm going to tell you something. Then you can go forward from your life and you can know the rest of your life. You know, among all the things that I may or may not have done, the Lord forgave my sins on that day. And I can deal with the rest of it. You'll have help. Once you become a Christian, you have help at that point. All your brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit will help you. Jesus himself will help you to do what's right. You can do that. And you'll know from that point on, I'm a Christian. And then one day when you face Judgment Day, you can say, to the Lord, if you say anything, I am, I depended upon Jesus Christ to save me. And that's all you're going to need. I didn't play games about it. I read in your word exactly what I ought to do, and I did that. Do you think the Lord will, will not respect that? Well, of course he'll respect that. Because that's what he told you to do. So, as we close this morning, I know it's real late. I thank you very much for your attention. And I want you to think about these things, and I hope that they have some kind of importance and meaning to you whether you're a Christian or whether you do need to be baptized yourself. And it's not something you should take lightly. 
It's not something that you should uh, just do because my husband wants me to do it or my wife wants me to do it or I should do it to impress people. This is something that's for you, that you need to do. And it's important whether your family likes it, whether they don't like it, you need to do what's right. So I encourage you to think about those things. And if we can help you today, this is a good time to, this is a good time to, to do this because everything is ready and your heart may be moved to do it. So if we can help you come right down to the front this morning, let's stand and sing.